the idea is that fix the money, fix the world is a thing that's often said, and that most of our problems in the world come from bad money. And I, I think my point is that malevolence in man is something that is so core to the human condition that fixing the money isn't going to actually magically fix all of these problems. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S, and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months, and then 1.5% back forever after. And also, for every dollar you spend over 50000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it's Casa. Whether you've just bought your first sats or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also today, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. But they are now expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Hey Dan, Rob. I'm doing well, how are you? 
good. Just gonna take a nice sip of my cool, refreshing Coca Cola. What Bitcoin did. Brought to you by Coca Cola. Brought to you by Coca Cola. Hey, dude, man. I'm doing well. So, um, I've not, never used my red Pepe. No, you didn't. I've still got the, the thing. Good. What's it? The d- open the thing. open dime. I um, I sweeped an open dime. Hoddle's bet. Did it. How much uh, support time did NVK give you to get that done? Zero. Wow. I, I think I had five minutes from Matt O'Dell. Okay. I found one of his tutorials. The problem the, with the green wallet, there was like two different types of wallet you can do. Interesting. Yeah. But anyway, did it, man. So anyway, how you been? I'm proud of you. I'm doing well. You didn't think I could do it, did you? I had my doubts. <laughs> um, yeah, how you been? Good to see you again. I saw you last week. See you again today. Yeah, it's great to be in Austin. Oh man, it's um, it, you're back by popular demand as well. I'm shocked to hear that. Well, mainly Danny, Danny fanboys for you. Fanboy for you. It's good to have a simp. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> uh, I feel like there are some evolving dialogues and conversation in Bitcoin, which are going beyond uh, what's traditionally been discussed over the last few years. I feel like there's a lot of different people coming in with newer conversations which are escaping the traditional niche of Bitcoin conversations. I know that because I'm doing some, right. but I also know it by just going out and meeting with people. I'm hearing these different conversations, and I think you're recognizing that as well. Yeah, I I would say so, and I think the change is part of Bitcoin's growth, right? as it goes from a very niche thing in the corner of the internet to something when I got in around 2013, 2014, it was a small group of very ideologically aligned people, but as Bitcoin continues its journey to being global money, you're going to have a larger and larger tent, which means you're going to have a shifting of the values of what makes up people who use Bitcoin. Because it's fundamentally a neutral tool. Do you think, do you think this is going to create a situation where we have uh, a fractured community who disagree on a number of fundamental issues? Or do you see... Us, do you see it as a, being a tool that can unite or both, really? Necessarily, it's going to have to have fractures. And I think there's a difference between social consensus and the technological consensus, right? So Bitcoin has to be very intolerant to change if it's going to have global scale and adoption. You need to be able to have the man in the coma from six years ago wake up, go to his Bitcoin node, use his money, and he ha- he can't be on the latest day-to-day of whatever political or economic or larger discussion, philosophical discussion of Bitcoin, right? Uh, You need to have that level of scale to reach everyone. But at the same time, I think a lot of people in Bitcoin, since it's a neutral canvas, they project their personal values onto Bitcoin. And that's where you get the social fracturing, where people believe Bitcoin uh, should only be used in certain ways, you know, Bitcoin should uh, maybe only be like with oil and gas mining versus the conversations you have with Troy about, you know, ESG, like in appealing to those values. Those are all things that are outside core consensus. And I think there needs to be a clear line between if you're trying to promote a contentious hard fork of Bitcoin, you're trying to change the rules, you are an outcast. But everything else, as long as you agree not to change the rules, you should be part of the larger ten of what Bitcoin is. Yeah, interesting. And do you, do you think with that... Uh, the discussions end up becoming not Bitcoin discussions because, like, there are discussions which have a Bitcoin bent to them, or uh, certain cohorts seem to attach themselves to a certain set of opinions. 
Uh, but if Bitcoin gets big enough, Bitcoin isn't the subject that you discuss and it just becomes different cohorts. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think this is a point that I've been thinking of. You are not Bitcoin, right? You individually as a person are not Bitcoin. Bitcoin, the network, is this large, decentralized, many nodes, geographically distributed across the entire world, very strong and safe. You individually, though, don't have those properties. And I think sometimes when people get involved with Bitcoin, they come in contact with this incorruptible, pure substance. And it changes their psychology a little bit, where they don't want to have, they almost use Bitcoin as a shield to protect their ego, right? Where they're going to say, Bitcoin never changes, so why should I? Or Bitcoin's intolerant to changes, why should I be, right? And I think that a social like backdooring happens in people's minds where they adopt the technological properties of Bitcoin as their social properties. And that's where you can kind of see those like fractious changes. Yeah. All right, well, listen, it's a big topic I want to get into with you today. It's, uh, it's been done on the show a number of times. Sure. Discussing hyper-Bitcoinization, what it is, what it means. Um, I first came across the term, I think in about 2017, Nakamoto Institute, read, read it. Dan Dip, Kravitz. Yeah. Rest in peace. <laughs> yeah. Well, some people won't know who he is, and you might think you mean something else there. Oh, no. He's... <laughs> uh, he left the rules of Bitcoin, so yeah. he's, he's outside the tent now. That's a really strange one. I, I don't understand why that happened. No. Um, but anyway, uh, I read it. Uh, I was like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, Bitcoin's just like digital money and right. be used by a few nerds and some companies maybe. But but now it's like there's a bit more of a reality to it. We've, uh, we've had a year where Bitcoin has an angle to every major news story whether it's Ukraine, Russia, COVID, truckers, El Salvador, inflation. There is a Bitcoin angle to everything. It continues to grow. Where are we at? 48,000. Um, lots of new people coming in. The idea of hyper-Bitcoinization, hyper depending on how you def define it, is becoming a bit more of a reality. It's like, okay, this could happen, depending on its definition, but it could happen. But that leads to some more bigger questions and bigger ideas. What does that mean for governance? What does that mean for other forms of money? So I want to get into this because I'm not entirely convinced by some of the other narratives people have. I'm not entirely convinced that Bitcoin eliminates all forms of money, all forms of government. I'm also, I have some reservations or nerves around the implications of the hyper-Bitcoinization other people have. So there's a lot to right. get into here. Sure. Uh, and uh, Danny said, got to talk about this with Rob. So for you, just, just as like a baseline starting point, what does hyper-Bitcoinization mean for you? What is it? Very strictly, Bitcoin gaining adoption as a global money. That's it. Everything beyond that are, I think, a lot of interpretations from our own personal values of what it looks like to us. And that's why you have these conflicting visions of what hyper-Bitcoinization means. And... I think taking a step back, what does it actually, like what, what does Bitcoin do? It fixes the Cantillon effect, the printing of money where some people are greatly benefited over others, right? It, you know, has a great ability to maybe help the energy grid. It has a great way to maybe kick off global innovation where the energy grid, one being a great example of it, it has certain properties as a result of it, but it doesn't fix core human malevolence, right? And I think in a hyper-Bitcoinized world, we all have to realize that it's very easy to port your wealth into Bitcoin. And just because your wealth is stored in Bitcoin doesn't confer any sort of larger moral properties beyond it. As we say, like Bitcoin is for enemies because if it wasn't for enemies, you couldn't let your friends use it. 
in the sense that it has to be actually neutral. Because the moment you start bringing a moral layer into who can use Bitcoin, how can they use Bitcoin, that's a double-edged sword that's going to be used against you. So keeping it very high level, it's just Bitcoin gaining adoption. And this, what you're saying, like it's intersecting with all these stories around the world. That is part of hyper-Bitcoinization. It's no longer a niche thing. It's being used by other people in different ways. Is, is hyper-Bitcoinization a process or is it something that can happen? And you can say, oh, hyper-Bitcoinization happened here and we're now post-hyper-Bitcoinization. Interesting. Uh, it's definitely a journey, but I think often when people talk about it, they talk about the final destination. And I was making this joke uh, with American HODL. Uh, a lot of Bitcoiners view hyper-Bitcoinization as their own version of heaven because it's whatever you want it to be, right? <laughs> and, and in the same way, there's also the idea of like Bitcoin rapture where like one day all of the good Bitcoiners will go to hyper-Bitcoinization and all of the no-coiners will just, you know, be left for eternal damnation, right? And it gets this, like when you have conversations with people, it takes on this very weird moral element, which I don't think necessarily applies to reality. Um, Putin was talking about taking oil imports in Bitcoin because he wants to get around the U.S. dollar because of the sanctions. I don't think Putin is a good person. He's going to use Bitcoin anyway, right? A lot of scammers, you know, the OneCoin um, fiasco, a lot, of, a lot of ill-gotten wealth was ported into Bitcoin. Tezos has 20,000 Bitcoin. They really haven't done much with it. And it's basically an ICO. And they're all using Bitcoin. And I think we have to all be honest about what does the reality look like in a hyper-Bitcoinized world where it's not going to have this moral judgment layer that many people apply to it. If you talk about hyper-Bitcoinization being Bitcoin becoming global money, how do we know when we're there? Because in, in many ways, it is global money already. People are using it globally. There's liquidity in every country in the world. You can send it to anyone in the world. So like, what is the point? Maybe like preferential tax status, where um, buying and selling Bitcoin doesn't have capital gains associated with it. Right, being able to uh, not be penalized to spend with Bitcoin to have a tax complication on the other side of it, I think would be a very big piece of that. Uh, more international trade just being settled in Bitcoin. Uh, today, it's something where people port it to it to store wealth. Some people use it for medium of exchange, um, but you usually have to be um, deep in the technical weeds or a very passionate Bitcoiner using the Lightning Network, which is all amazing stuff. And it's building out the future infrastructure for tomorrow, but it's not really being globally applied at scale. I think there's 4,000 Bitcoin on the Lightning Network today. Um, on public channels, there's probably more in hidden channels and private channels, but like that's not, it technically is there from a zero to one. It technically exists, but we're trying to get to the larger scale of adoption. I still don't know what that actually means. Like, because for me, the assumption, like I have personally yeah. hyper Bitcoinized, right? Yes. I have, because I consider any considerable purchase through a Bitcoin lens. Mm -hmm. And I consider my long-term financial planning through a Bitcoin lens. But like for that to be a something, like people talk about like a Bitcoin standard, does it get to the point where the majority of people are trying to settle in Bitcoin? Is, is that what we're trying to get to? Because I'm still not clear. I would say that would be the goal. Me personally as well. Uh, I view like my unit of account and my spending decisions through the lens of Bitcoin, right? But it's an individual person's journey. And it, you know, with 7 billion people on the planet, it's going to take a lot of time to bring people along on that journey. So you and I may already be on the other side of what that looks like, but there's a large group of people, a lot of money on the outside looking in. So I think it's, it's, it's just a process that takes time, ultimately. And, and also, I think it's a process that is going to be messy, and bloody mm -hmm. and dangerous and it doesn't fill me with huge amounts of joy 
it's it's nice when there's a little bump in the Bitcoin price, but the idea of the collapse of currencies, which can lead to the collapse of nations, which can lead to the collapse of economies to get us to a Bitcoin world, that transition feels kind of scary. Yeah, so there's almost like two branches in how this could actually go down, right? Uh, just thinking about it. You could have that uh, that dystopian view where for Bitcoin to rise, other things must fail. But there also could be a co-integration with the existing financial system over time, right? Like there is a happy path where Bitcoin gets permissive um, financial regulatory oversight. It gets to be integrated uh with the U.S. dollar hegemony, a lot of people have talked about how, you know, with instabilities around the world, the U.S. dollar and Bitcoin would be the ones that would be best positioned to be able to benefit from that. As the U.S. dollar being the global reserve currency, you could have it go in such a way where the U.S. dollar gets strengthened because Bitcoin strengthens and there's a lot of Bitcoin in the United States and it could be used as kind of a financial rail to dollarize the rest of the world. So I, I always try to, I'm fundamentally an optimist, but I always, uh, I'm also a realist in the sense of making sure, you know, I'm doing my small part to not let, you know, hell come to earth. <laughs> uh, but how, you know, this is what we're to talk about. Yeah. Like, how does hell come to earth? What are the risks of this? So the risks of uh, basically Bitcoin gaining prominence because everything else collapses? Yeah, I mean, and because there's two ways to look at it. Everything could collapse and we're lucky we have Bitcoin as that's a lifeboat for some people and a, you know, a, a better uh, financial system. But there was also the fact that Bitcoin could lead to the collapse of other things, currencies and economies because we have the speculative attack, etc. So chicken and egg. Well, I, I wouldn't think it's fair to say that Bitcoin causes the collapse. I think it provides an escape valve for people that are being taken advantage of. But speculators Spec oh, could accelerate right. crashes. I mean, they're basically front-running the future that they see coming, right? Of that, course. Right. And the question then is, is like, if they... It, it's fundamentally the weakness of the dollar system and the unfair nature of the dollar system that brings people to Bitcoin. If we had a functioning U.S. dollar that didn't have uh, uncontrolled money printing, very discretionary to politicians, Bitcoin would have less of, of an actual threat vector, right? I think that was... Uh, was it Safedine that said that uh, one of the best ways the, to actually yep. kill Bitcoin is have a stable U.S. dollar and yeah. cooperative politicians? But that's never going to happen, yeah. right? So it's unfair to put the blame at Bitcoin's feet if it's fundamentally a, a failure of politicians and institutions to be able to step in and help out, right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not putting it at Bitcoin's feet. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is once you go through a transitionary period, you could see an acceleration from it. Yeah, gradually then suddenly. Gradually then suddenly, Yeah. And that's the bit, like, I don't think any of us know how this all happens, how this plays out, what the impact is. And I don't really think we know where you can apportion blame for this because it feels like a very complicated crossover. But at the same time, when it happens, we don't know what the financial makeup of the world will be. A lot of Bitcoins held in America. Does suddenly America come out of this much stronger than other nations? Are there small nations that took too long to adopt it and they're fundamentally weaker? Does their, does their entire economy collapse? These are the things I don't even know where to start thinking about it. Yeah, because fundamentally, uh, if you're thinking at right now, like the uh, price of fertilizer spiking, right? And people that. are talking about uh, possible famines and shortages because with the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, that uh, that's kind of the breadbasket of the world. And if they're in war right now, they can't be planting. 
and I think the, the tragedy in some ways is that the, the poorest countries in the world, the poorest people in the world, the ones that can be most adversely affected. Because while the US dollar is still working, while we still have wealth and control and supply chains and logistics, we're going to be able to get food. It may be more expensive. So you're right. It's like a lot of people didn't do anything wrong to have the bad things happen to them. And it's a tough thing to reconcile and understand. Uh, for me personally, I think the conversations around Bitcoin and bringing people to the other side into that lifeboat, it's an individual person's journey, usually in person. Social doesn't really quite scale to have like good, authentic conversations. So it's me personally. It's a term I came up with. Uh, my buddy Chris came up with uh, slow pilling because I went to Bitcoin in to- late 2013 and I, was, I went to BitDevs in New York City. And I walked in the room and there was like 20 people there. And after two hours, I was like, I am the dumbest person in this room by a mile. And I use that as part of like this call to action and seeing what, what, what's actually down this rabbit hole. And that was, you know, you know, seven, eight years ago at this point. And at first I was so excited to like tell everyone about Bitcoin. You sound like a crazy person. Like the orange pill hits you hard, but you but it's not authentic because you haven't been around long enough to be able to integrate these ideas. You're just speaking what other people have already said. You maybe not deeper understand the consequences of what's going on. So you kind of look like a crazy person to your friends, but it plants the seeds for years later for them to come back to me. A uh, lot during COVID, a lot of people reaching out to me about like, oh, I want to buy some Bitcoin. How should I store it? Like, how does Bitcoin work? And then when they're ready, they come back to you. Hopefully as you're further along your journey and you're able to you know, have those conversations, it has to be an a one-to-one journey. I think a podcast like this is a great way to get the message one-to-many, but most people don't have that platform to be able to do it. And social media, where a lot of people try and get that scale, it's not a good place to have these more nuanced conversations. So you get side-railed and distractions all the time, and it pulls you in many different directions, so you can't kind of keep that strong message going forward. I think that's a a really good point. I I do think social media is the worst platform (laughs) for having these conversations. It just... It doesn't work. Um, I also think it can feel like a bit of a shit show for people coming in when they're first trying to learn. Like, what is all this craziness? Yeah, there's a. It, it, if you don't have any background or context, you walk in. It's like you, you walked into a bar like near closing time, and it's just a bunch of rowdy people running around and like little groups and cliques, and it's a bit of a circus, right? Uh, it, it takes time to be able to like get orientation and understand what it, what's exactly going on. And that's why I think those in-person conversations are so critical. Do you think with the idea around hyper-Bitcoinization, more work should be done trying to consider, map out, theorize how the transition happens? What, what is at risk? What do we, you know, what do we risk losing? Uh, what, do we, what do we potentially gain? Uh, what are the risks of, of ignoring this? Would, and, you know, because also in some ways it's like, it's not like everyone can come to Bitcoin at the same time if they wanted to. It couldn't support that. Right. So there are going to be winners and losers in the transition. Yeah. So like what's our duty as people who have been here for a while to think about how do we kind of best prepare for that? Yeah, because, and I'm a hypocrite for this, but celebrating price rises on Twitter is one thing. But one of the things I think about when I see a price rise, I'm like, okay, this is going to make it more difficult for some other people be able to get in yeah it's like el salvador took the gamble being the first one and you know it is a gamble and being the second one is less of a gamble and being the third one is less of a gamble but then that flips at some point being too late is a gamble there's always going to be winners and losers and uh are we spending enough time thinking through the consequences of hyper bitcoinization not just this like utopian view that suddenly we have hard money and there's no money misinformation and 
and everything's just going to work great. And we're all cattle ranchers on a hundred acre farm in Texas. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> like, are we really thinking the, through the, the local and global impacts of this? Cause I, I don't see enough of it myself. So I don't think we do. Right. And having the tough conversations, most people don't realize that you can't give each person in the world a Bitcoin address and support the network. It just doesn't scale with one megabyte blocks every 10 minutes. We like, you can't onboard the entire world onto Bitcoin directly, right? So things like Lightning, things uh, um, like channel factories, like being able to have, um, I forgot this new protocol that came out, but it was talking about basically like coin pools where you could have multiple people own a UTXO together, right? So there's a technology side and being able to make sure we can add seats to the life raft to let more people in. But from a social side, I don't think those conversations are happening, in general, around because like, I think it very maybe the, the social circles you and I are in, but it's usually very um, pie in the sky utopianist. And the problem with utopias is that anyone who would oppose the utopia becomes like an enemy to the cause. And there's almost you can justify any means to try and silence them, dissuade them from having their opinion because they're a threat to the utopian idea, right? And I think the first step is being able to break out of that frame and be able to say, "I disagree with you." And we need to have these tough conversations. And maybe that's part of what we're starting today. It, it, it's such a hard thing for me because just my journey with Bitcoin, it's always an individual person's journey. And I only have so much time in the day. So all I can do is try and bring people that are closest to me in. And maybe second, third order effects, they start bringing more people on themselves. Uh, it's not a fun answer, but it's what I know I can do. What's in my direct control, right? Because once you try and ascribe responsibility to a community, it becomes very hard to be able to get actionable follow-ups have the ability to show progress, right? Uh, it's a tough thing to kind of reconcile, like what is the responsibility of a community? Well, so I have the personal journey you have, but I also have this collective journey mm -hmm. where I have a bunch of listeners who are going on that with me who want to hear certain things. And as a collective group of people, they don't agree on what they want to hear about. Sure. You go to the YouTube comments, they disagree on some guests and then agree on others and, they fight and argue, but I'm trying to take a group of people on a collective journey to understand the technology, how it works, how it's going to impact their life, how it's going to impact mining. So I have to go on that collective journey. Therefore, for me, I do have to think through the consequences because it's important as a group of people, we understand these consequences. Well, like, what are we really saying with hyper-Bitcoinization? What is it we're really bringing? What are the consequences of this? So for me, it is. And... I think we should have these tough conversations. Yeah, I think you have a unique position with your platform and your podcast to be able to uh, bring that outward, right? And you're bringing people along that, that group journey. And I think just having those dialogues and going to where it's uncomfortable. Because usually if people are... Let's go there. Well, let's, let's do it. I don't... Where, where do you want to start? Well, what is the utopia? Well, the utopia is this idea that... Uh, not only is the money fixed, right? But um, we all—it's all a level of like wish fulfillment for each person you talk to about like what it's like, kind of like uh, your fantasy of what you're going to do with your Bitcoin wealth in the future, right? And I think a lot of people want to like this extreme decadence of live in a big mansion, have like you know a bunch of cars, and which like that's obviously fun. You want to have toys to play with to reward yourself for your wealth, but you're almost kind of uh, neglecting greater responsibility back to your community, right? But that's like a, that's a personal utopia. That's sure. not a societal utopia. Well, I think most people view hyper-Bitcoinization as maybe their personal utopia, but the, the idea is that w fix the money, fix the world, is the yeah. thing that's often said, and that 
most of our problems in the world come from bad money. And I think my point is that malevolence in man is something that is so core to the human condition that fixing the money isn't going to actually magically fix all of these problems. It may reduce the incentives to do so, right? But it's not going to actually fix everything. Like there's, there probably still will be war, conflict. Uh, the one quote I wrote down before uh, coming here, um, I started uh, reading Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. I got this from Jordan Peterson. Uh, the very quick line though is, the, the dividing line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? And I think the idea that just because, yeah, and just because the idea that you have good money, you're going to absolve man of sin is just a very, um, it, it's a lot of hubris, right? It's, it's almost like he, that was written for today, right? <laughs> exactly. After the show, I'm going to tell you about why that's highly relevant. Okay. I can't talk about it Not during a problem. the show. But um, it's super interesting because uh, we were discussing something. There's a situation whereby there's a decision that needs to be made and it's a decision whereby there is a ethical reason to lie that mm. might have implications, but it leads to a strong, uh, a better position economically. Okay. And we were discussing it hypothetically. What would you do in this scenario? Uh, and you know, we don't all agree. Jeremy's very much along the truth is the most important thing and sure. deal with the consequences and, you know, me and Danny have been debating, well, whether if, if you, there's, there's an ethical lie, it's a white lie, maybe that's the right decision. But it would chip away at the soul to make that decision. I'm, I'm sorry I'm it being is. so no, uh, candid, I just can't can, talk about it on the we, show. No, we can talk, this can just become, just cut off the cameras, we'll make this a therapy session, we can keep it going. <laughs> no, uh, no, but there's an interesting thing about uh, a lot of people in life, and for me, my Bitcoin journey uh, it's funny, uh, for me, f using Bitcoin as a tool, and like you're talking about like what we should do with our Bitcoin journey. For me, uh, I've used Bitcoin in my life to be able to afford myself opportunities that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Being able to quit my job, go back to school, follow my passions, uh, like going down the programming data science rabbit hole, and because and it's something that really called out to me, but I didn't I wouldn't have had the permission structure otherwise. So I very quickly sold some Bitcoin, very happily, to be able to offer those opportunities to me because it made me a better person and I was following like my inner calling, right? So this was uh, the idea I was thinking about coming into here was like the idea of the hero's journey in Bitcoin, right? Uh, the hero's journey is a very archetypical story. Yeah. Star Wars, Matrix, The Hobbit, you can look at a bunch of them, right? But you live in the ordinary world, right? That's, that's kind of the pre-Bitcoin's part of the journey. Then there's the call to adventure. Someone tells you about Bitcoin. And what inevitably always happens, you ignore it, which is the next step of the hero's journey, which is denying the call to adventure, right? Yeah. And then from there, you finally uh, meet a mentor, which I think and sometimes is like something like this podcast or Twitter or a book, right? You may not have an individual one-on-one -on -one relationship with them, but you find a mentor to take you through that journey of what does it mean to use Bitcoin? How do you secure your Bitcoin? How do you... Uh, use a node, right? Like, like it's a very, it's a very complicated thing to take the first full step into Bitcoin that you need someone to kind of coach you through that journey. And then ultimately you cross the threshold, you, you go into that world of trying to integrate Bitcoin more into your life. And there's a bunch of tests along the way to be able to understand what that looks like. And the, the goal ultimately is that you get, uh, the idea is the abyss, you get to the bottom, like you're in a period of deep chaos, but you rise out of the challenge and you come back home and you share, you go return to the ordinary world and you share that treasure with the community, right? And I think that's for me personally, 
like my journey with Bitcoin is being able to use Bitcoin as a tool. The one that pulled me onto this like call to like learn more about myself, follow my passions, but to also be able to come back and return that knowledge and share it with others and share the treasure. And I, I'm wearing your uh, Real Bedford shirt today, but I think that's a very like on a lighthearted way. That's a great way example, right? Because like you, it, it was a little bit of wish fulfillment because when you were a kid, you wanted to start the football club, but you were able to take Bitcoin in a fun way and bring the treasure back to the community, right? Like it's one way of expressing that progress in that relationship with you and Bitcoin is that it starts out as this weird thing. For me personally, uh, when I first started using Bitcoin, I was using it to play poker because it was a way uh, in the United States, they banned not online poker, but the bank transfers to and from poker websites. And the first thing I was like, well, Bitcoin's not bank transfers. And right, start playing poker. Bitcoin hasn't changed. But for me now, it's, my mission in life is to get to the end of it and hand over my private keys to my kids. Very, very different. It's the same Bitcoin, but in a way I use it as a healthy way to kind of transform my value structure and putting me through that crucible to get to the other side of, you know, my relationship. And I think that's a really interesting thing. And you meet a lot of people who've been in Bitcoin for a long time and you see these healthy transformations of they were using it for the Silk Road and then they come out on the other end, they're doing something else, right? Uh, I think that's what, Part of what hyperbitcoinization looks like is going through this hero's journey and also being able to have it kind of make you a better person and having it be this grounding force. Uh, this is another Jordan Peterson thing of like chaos versus order. And for me, having something like Bitcoin that I have high confidence it will always exist and that it will be there for my kids allows me to function and orientate my life in a certain way that I have deep trust that Bitcoin will exist. And I have that as a foundation for my own personal exploration in life. Why do you have that such strong belief? That Bitcoin will be around? Yeah. It, right. Uh, so from the ability of the, the, the ways that it could be destroyed is ECDSA, like the, the crypto, cryptographic signatures break, or SHA-256 breaks. Everything else will be really inconvenient, but it won't actually destroy Bitcoin. And it's one of these things where I can, you know, keep my private keys locked away for 10, 15 years. And as long as some miners out there continuing to mine, it's so resilient. You need so little effort to be able to keep the network alive from a sense of nation, like global wide attack. And uh, it's every day that Bitcoin's around, it's more likely that it's going to be around tomorrow and so on, like the Lindy effect. So it's one of these things where maybe that's a bad proposition to think that. Maybe, maybe it's a faulty assumption. I haven't encountered a threat model yet that's actually scared me to the point where I think that's not going to happen. But it's also why, you know, it's not the only value in my life. I have my family, you know, I have my wife. Uh, there's a lot of other things outside of Bitcoin that I'm grounded to, and I use Bitcoin as a tool to achieve those ends. What about this collective utopia about the absolute huge benefits to society by being on a Bitcoin standard? You know, as you said, Bitcoin fixes this. Are we, are we perpetuating a myth? Are we being overly optimistic or people saying that being overly optimistic are we are we imagining a world we've got no idea what actually it will be and it, and we don't know the actual impact it's almost like if bitcoin so we've maybe the only other time besides bitcoin would be the internet where we started something that can't be shut off uh-huh. and it's kind of like a train barreling down 100 100 miles an hour just going really fast and if you're on top of the train and you're strapped to it, like, cause you're using Bitcoin, you have deep conviction in it. The only comforting thing maybe you can say is 
you know, it's taking us to heaven, <laughs> right? Because it's like a coping mechanism because you're, you're somewhat powerless because if you can't change Bitcoin directly, you have to kind of like hope for the best. So when we're talking about like the, I forgot your exact question, but we're talking about this larger thing. I think it's a bit of a story, I think, also to inspire us because these stories have been around for, you know, sub Bitcoin $1,000, right? So it's also a powerful rallying cry because as the price goes up, it's showing a manifestation that our worldview is winning, right? So it's kind of becomes this thing where we all have confidence in it because if you've been around long enough, you know, you've seen a lot of chaos and turmoil and seeing your worldview proven has this, uh, one, it's like it's exhilarating thing because you everyone's telling you you're wrong. You end up being right. It also, some for some people, I think it, uh, they, they use that mental model of, you know, I'm always right as a way to maybe have bad so- social relationships because they have extreme arrogance because they were right about Bitcoin. They believe they were right about everything else, right? Well, that that's uh, something we discussed with Junseth earlier. Oh, did you? Yeah, we got we 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 got into that quite deep. Um, it's a tough act to follow. Well, perhaps it perhaps one of the better things is to look about look at the trade offs. Then, you know, what what are the what are the good things that will come out of it? But what are the potential risks? Um, so, one of the things let's talk about a risk. This is one that won't be popular. Um, I don't mind paying tax. I think I pay too much tax. I think government is too big. And they take too much money and they waste the majority of it. But I am not anti-tax. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't believe in no government. I believe in small government. But I do not mind paying tax for the government to deliver certain services. Easy ones to explain that a lot of people might be okay with is like borders. Securing borders. Fine. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with paying tax for the roads, even though I know the roads will be fine anyway. I'm okay paying tax for socialized healthcare. I want to pay that. I want other people to be able to to get healthcare. I do. I that is part of who I am. Um, now this would this in certain camps would put me as a, a lefty. Actually, no. In the UK, I'm still a conservative because I want smaller government mm-hmm. and I want lower tax, but I still want a health service. Okay, but that's I am okay. I'm okay with tax. But there is a potential scenario where people imagine in Bitcoin, you can't collect tax. And therefore, what do you lose in terms of social stability, where we live in a world where it's everything is no government, everything is voluntary, we have no, uh, we have no support structures for the vulnerable in society, we have no support structures for those who are out of work, things like that. Do we know will that lead to a net better world or a net worse world? Does it ghettoize parts of a country? Does it lead to a haves and haves not? That is something that I'm not entirely comfortable with. I'll take it one step further. Yeah. Um, I don't think this will happen, but I don't think it's impossible, where in a world where Bitcoin wins, you're going to have almost like a sort of like neo-feudalism, where you have all of the people who got into Bitcoin, have a bunch of wealth, and then you're going to have a massive gap in the class structure. I don't think that's likely to happen, but if you're like you're talking about, you know, it's it's hard to confiscate, you know, you know, you have this very strong money that everyone goes to, the people who are first movers are gonna have disproportionate advantages. And like a Pareto distribution, it'll be twenty percent of the people have eighty percent of the Bitcoin, right? Or some rough equivalent. You, you don't remove hierarchies just because there's Bitcoin, right? humans are naturally hierarchical creatures. They're always going to self-organize in a way where you're going to find people who are better than others. You're going to have competition. You're not going to be able to break that. And on the on the part of taxes, it, it's funny because uh, 
this is a conversation I get into all the time about like not paying taxes and, you know, less like smaller government. I'm ideologically on the side of, I think there's a lot that can be getting to a smaller government before we get to the really hard questions on healthcare or being able to have conversations around like border security. Right. For, for me, this is just my personal like belief is that there is a role for a government and that my mission is to try and find common ground on things that we can use to like make it smaller. And I think that's a very pragmatic way of going about it. Um, it it's funny because when I first got into Bitcoin, I was probably more on the ANCAP side. I, I appreciate it as a ideological lens to like evaluate my own beliefs through, but I still believe there should be a government. So am I a status cuck now? Like, is that, is that where it goes? I've got you. <laughs> You're captured. You're with me. <laughs> I'm going to get told off of that. Somebody told me off recently for calling myself status cuck on the podcast all the oh. time. They're like, you always say it, you're always calling yourself one. And then I get to an episode and you've not said it. And now you said it again. <laughs> and now you're part of it. Apologies. Well, I actually, I actually think that um, status cuck thing is a really unhelpful way of describing somebody. I think it, it puts again out a binary argument. Yeah. It's either you believe no government or you're a cuck. And I'm just thinking, I think that's it's, it's intellectually weak and for that person they've removed themselves from what is a really practical discussion and the reason that's a practical discussion is you can also turn around to that person and say okay talk to me about property rights talk to me about talk to me about your home you know forget bitcoin bitcoin is you know the first property that's easy to secure outside of everyone else and very difficult to confiscate it's almost unconfiscatable like tone phase conference but some people are still going to own land and property and other items. How are your property rights going to be protected? Where does the rule of the law for that come from? It can't come from some weird arbitrary set of courts where you decide which one you want to use based on Yelp reviews. And we, from that, we figure out which, you know, because I, you have to centralize some of the decision and the rules based around that. Well, how is that different from govern, government? How do you come to those rules? How do you establish what those are? And I really struggle with that area. Consensus is a big word in Bitcoin. It's the moment you start talking about those relationships with government, it's how do you agree to those rules? Um, I think a lot of the backlash of this stuff is that a lot of people who get pulled into Bitcoin are people who are disenfranchised with the world around them. They think government's too big and they go to one end as like a, a goalpost, like a flag for them to rally towards. And I think this ties into like, the fact that that'd be an opening conversation part for someone in, like to try and have, it's not, a, it's not a good faith conversation if that's someone's opening gambit, right? Like if that, if that's, if you say like, Hey, I believe there should be some government, it's like oh, status cuck. It's like, it's people who there's this thing where during the block size wars in 2017, Bitcoin Twitter got really big and there was a rightful reason to be a huge dick to people because they were trying to, they were trying to mess with Bitcoin. Yeah. Right. And I think now, and I was talking to Hoddle about this, like there's now like a standing army that has no reason to, like there's no war at the moment. There is no block size war. So it all just turns inward, right? And it's very, uh, it, it, it's very unhealthy, one. Two, it, it's not productive. And, it, and it, it's because we already won. There's so, the stakes are so small now. Uh, but that standing army says they're preparing for when it happens again. And by the way, I think a large part of that standing army wasn't even around in 2017. They weren't. They weren't. No. And this is where, as, as a community and like a social hierarchy, people started grafting onto the aesthetic of being a dick. 
to be able to gain status. And it became a way to, it used to be, uh, you had to be really knowledgeable about Bitcoin. You had to have something unique to say. And uh, it, it shifted into this culture of, you know, of being toxic for the sake of being toxic, which again, I think it's very in the bounds. Like I'm going to be like anyone who's trying to actually change the rules of Bitcoin in a contentious hard fork, absolutely guns a blazing. But if, if that's not happening, then it's just about being an empathetic person and having conversations. There's, there's a limit, I think, to how far being a dick can take you though. Oh yeah, sure. It, it's not a compelling way of persuasion. It, it's not for you to be persuaded. It's for everyone else to let them know, hey, you better stick in line. You better not step out of line, right? It's not actually trying to convince you. It's trying, because this is, this is the problem with social media, is that there's an audience. You, me and you may be having a dialogue, but what actually matters is all the people that are doing likes and retweets on top of it. And I think that's the malincentive where you're removing yourself from authentic conversation that you couldn't have, like ones that you would only be able to have in person. You can't have them online. So it becomes this metagame of, being able to chase clout status, letting other people agree with you. And it becomes a very, uh, like, well, oftentimes it's a waste of time because if you're not having a good faith conversation, why even bother playing with it? And like, these are conversations I used to have with my wife where I would get in some debate on Twitter and she'd be like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, like, what, do you care about this person? Then just yeah, stop. Blue, right? blue dog 54 fucked me off today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Him and his 22 followers. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, look, Twitter's a miserable failure. Uh, but I don't think it's from a lack of people want to, There are people out there who want to have those discussions. The problem is, there's, it's, uh, it's like at a football match, right? You could be watching a game of football, and you could be down in the corner, a player comes sliding in, does a tackle, he wins the ball. It's mm -hmm. a good tackle. Mm -hmm. But in winning the ball, he takes down the striker. All the people in that corner who support the team of the striker, they're like, this is bullshit, referee, fuck you. Like, mm -hmm. that, that can happen. Sure. Because that's their team. Right. So they shout and yell and they, they, you know, they confuse the picture. Whereas all the people who support the defender are like, ah, oh, great tackle. And they, because they, it was, but like vice versa works. It kind of becomes like that on Twitter. You know, somebody can make a very intellectual, nuanced point that deserves discussion. But if it's on the wrong side, they're all like, "Wow, screw this, fuck you!" Like, it's become like a, it's become like that. It's become like sports. Yeah, it's a miserable failure. This goes to like the fracturing of Bitcoin as a community, where I think there's a very vocal minority of people who take the zero tolerance view to having a conversation, and they're gonna, you know, the the problem is, is persuasion is in such a way is like you can't tell them don't do this, right? Because the moment you start trying to control a Bitcoin or telling them what they can and cannot do, that's like a trigger. Like you're just gonna get, you know, more bad bad reactions and response. The best way you could do is just lead by example, having good conversations, being your own best role model, doing best for you and your family and your local community, and just keeping it in a way where uh, you remove power from the people who have shitty attitudes by not engaging or just understanding that, or maybe even just you know, feeling bad for him. You know, it, you know, it's kind of sad that like this is this is the way that you talk to people. Like I'm, I'm so, whoever hurt you. I'm sorry they hurt you, yeah. but that, I'm not your therapist. I'm not going to try and heal you. Yeah, but give give me a dad's phone number. I'll give him a call. We'll have a chat with him about yeah. it. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin. Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full-suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. 
So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Next up, it's sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it is Compass Mining. And they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining. And I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone. And as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Also today, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Just, just sorry, circling back to the point though. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that impact on society? So one of the th- one of the memes I'm not a fan of and some people might say, look, it's just a meme, but I'm not a fan of the Citadel meme. Okay. And the reason I'm not a fan of the Citadel meme, it makes me think of elites. Yep. It makes me consider a group of elites who within the current structure of society have managed to build themselves in a position where they can go into the Citadel Mm -hmm. and recruit people maybe outside of the Citadel to come in and do work who get banished at the end of the day out of the Citadel because they can't afford to be there. I think it creates this haves and have-nots. And... I'm of the belief that uh, 
the society functions and coordinates by how it protects vulnerable people in society. Mm -hmm. And that does require some form of taxation. I don't want a lot, but some form of taxation and some form of protection for the vulnerable in society, whether that is through uh, laws and regulations for civil rights and equality, or whether that is some kind of protection for people if, if they're without work and they need to be able to feed you know feed their family and survive i think when you take that away you look at the societies that don't have that they get wise they collapse you know, when, you, when you have a breakdown of the rule of law the weakest in society become the most vulnerable mm-hmm. you have an increase in violence and rape and murder and theft and i think we've been very lucky to live in a web western liberal democracy we've built this up now don't get me wrong it's fucked at the moment <laughs> it's completely failing but i think for my majority of my life, the 43 years I've had, I've been very lucky to grow up in one of those. The idea of burning that all down to live in a citadel seems to me a net loss. And I, my worry with Bitcoin is it may be that's one of the outputs of hyper-Bitcoinization. We get that kind of world. Mm-hmm. Well, this, is, this goes back to humans being naturally hierarchical creatures. So you opt out of the fiat game and you enter the Bitcoin game. And since you're here early, you get to put yourself near the top of the structure. Right, and that's where the citadel thing comes in. You get to have your own castle, um, your feudal thing. Yeah, the, the, the feudal thing, right? Because I mean, that's an extension of the citadel meme. Is that you're going to have these fiefdoms of different castles of Bitcoin lords, and you know, it doesn't fundamentally address, like you said, to like community problems. For me, like this is the moment you you the, the, there's. I'm trying to think through this. You have this balance of centralization and decentralization. And the government on one end and this uh, Bitcoin vision on the other end. For me, you want to have, this is where I go back to, like I want to have some level of government to be able to have that rough structure for rule of law and order. My personal bent is probably someone more of a communitarian and going back to the hero's a journey. Communitarian. Well, like, like, I've like, never even heard that word. Oh, just like focusing on local, like communities, like, like yeah. local government as opposed yeah. to federal government, right? Where you have the most impact control and you know people, right? Yep. You have your own social and friend network of people who are around you. And for me, like being able to focus on the things that I can control. Because I think there's this problem where when you outsource things to government, it becomes a group problem and diffusal responsibility leads to inaction. Yeah. Right and inefficiencies, inefficiencies too. Yeah, and but some things are have to be inefficient, and that's okay. Those are the trade offs for living in a society. For me, like the idea, of, like if we're gonna do wish fulfillment, if I had a citadel, I'd probably be someone who would do a lot of you know local care of the community, not because I'm being compelled to, but because I would like to help those around me. Because I do think that communities are judged by how those who are least um, well off are being taken care of. Because I think that's a really fair rubric of. You know, you can anyone can make it, but what happens if you don't, right? And that's kind of a judgment on the quality of that society. I think it's a really fair point. Yeah, let's talk about more of a benefit. Then. Let's talk about having, like, we had Jeff Booth on, and we discussed m- the misinformation in fiat money mm-hmm. and how that distorts society and mm-hmm. leads to malinvestment. How do you think that improves under a Bitcoin standard? So Bitcoin has this unique property where every time you make a financial calculation in Bitcoin, if you miscalculate, there's no refunds. The money does not come back to you. And I think in, in a fiat game where you have bailouts and crony capitalism and, and favors being cut, people can just keep misspending money and there's always another print around the corner to be able to help you out, right? And this is where you don't actually get a market feedback loop of taking in new information, integrating it, getting feedback from the market and how successful you are, 
if you always have someone who's just going to walk in and buy or subsidize your business. So in a Bitcoin world, you're going to be able to have an ability to make your economic calculations and those who generate value are going to accrue more Bitcoin and those who can't generate as much value are going to have less. And this is where in a fully functioning capitalist system, ideally, you're going to have a world where people who are able to generate a lot of wealth and value, like just take someone today, like a Jeff Bezos, Amazon has fundamentally changed all of our relationships with how we interact with commerce. That's benefited a lot of individuals. There are costs to that. I know you were trying to quit Amazon for a month. How did that go? Do you know, I, I never actually started it just because I hadn't got around to it. But no, I do want to do it. Um, it's more of a case of I've been traveling pretty much. Sure. Stuff. I barely used it because I've been traveling. Right. So it's not a proper test even. I mean, if I went in, I probably haven't put an order in in, in a month, but I'm, I'm here. So I literally haven't had a chance. Right. The real test is when I go home and I don't use it. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the real test. Uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong to do that. Maybe... Innovation is something we have to accept, and and you know, Amazon is like a natural output of technological innovation. Personally, if I'm as somebody who, like you, prefers the local community, I should just be making an effort to put my money into local smaller smaller businesses. I am going to look at it. It would be an interesting test, yeah. but I, I assume I will fail. Yeah, I think Amazon Net is a positive for society. Like I understand that you know it's kind of like when the car was invented, people who were doing horseshoe repairs and carriage, like making carriages, lost out. But that's the creative destruction of capitalism. Yeah. You're going to have to necessarily have to have progress. Typewriters stopped being used because computers were invented. Right. The change in of itself is not a moral judgment. You have to be conscious of being able to separate out. Uh, there will always be disruption and labor disallocate. Like like, you know, being dislodged because they no longer have a job. But it's what enables the quality of life that we have today. And we have to kind of somewhat embrace that. Quality of life for who, though? Well, for this is the market as a distribution function. It's for whatever everyone decides because you choose to spend your money on Amazon. So mm-hmm. everyone who's choosing to spend their money on Amazon is making a decision saying Amazon's bettering my life. I think there's an interesting interplay with class, though. I think there's certain, because the people who get Amazon packages every day, but... There's certain people who won't be using Amazon every day because they don't have money, but they might be the person who has to go and work there because it's the only job available. And where they used to work in a bookstore and talk to the people coming in, they're mm-hmm. now having their pee breaks timed and right. having to run around and you know struggling in a, a, a depressing environment to work in. Well, this is the interplay with class, yeah. right? Is that uh, and this is someone thing that I would probably consider myself in the political compass, right libertarian, but having sympathies for class-based arguments and understanding that you're going to have winners and losers and how do you handle and manage the, how the people who lose in the capitalist system are being taken care of. Uh, It's also this funny thing too, where uh, I'm not sure if you remember, I was here in the U S when all of the coal miners were getting put out of work because there was a lot of new energy being put up. And the reality is we're going to make, we're going to make them learn how to code. Right, we're going to get coal miners learning how to code, and it was kind of the silly thing because, like, a lot of the response was like, "Well, you know, they're in their late thirties, early forties; like, they're not going to be able to get a tech job." It's kind of like a media narrative that was being pushed on them, and then some media companies had to let go of their journalists, and everyone's like, "Oh, maybe you should learn how to code," and then that became banned on Twitter. It was like a bannable offense to tell a reporter to learn how to code. So there's these interesting ways power structures reinsert themselves where. Oh, the miner, like the, the people that are working in coal mines, they can learn how to code. Oh, me? Oh, well, I'm a journalist. 
I'm dignified. I don't, I don't want to do that. That's insulting. Ban that person, right? And, and that's what happened for a while. Uh, so the class structure doesn't only always play from a monetary level, but it's also like a social status level of where people perceive themselves in society. So what happens to uh, Amazon worker rights in a, uh, in a society without government and rules? Is it Yelp reviews? This is a great place to work at. Or is it fuck, that's the only job I can get? Let me think of that. So <laughs> the idea would be, and I'm going to try and play both sides. One, you're going to have a world, you know, the let's take the happy case first, is where you're going to have a lot of people who you're going to be able to work at Amazon, but you're able to actually build savings, right? Your money's not being devalued. So you're, maybe you have to work at Amazon for five, 10 years, but now you have an actual base of money since you're being paid in Bitcoin that's actually going to raise value over time. So you're able to actually, instead of living hand to mouth, you actually could work a job and have savings and maybe be able to take a crack at being an entrepreneur or move across the country to a different opportunity, right? Like that would be the idea of the working class in general, a hyper-Bitcoinized world raising all ships. As the money gets better, people who honestly do work and generate value are going to be able to get that compensation and store it away for a better day. So that would be... If there's money left at the end of the month after they paid for the... And, and also in that situation, if everyone's got Bitcoin, is everyone not just rising at the same rate? Yeah, so, so this... How do you like elevate to the next class? So the increase in productivity of society would be able to increase the value of the Bitcoin, right? So the idea is like, if you're saying like literally everyone's holding Bitcoin, you're going to be in a position where as new, as innovation still continues to happen, you're going to have more goods and services available for the same 21 million Bitcoin. So you're going to have more opportunity and more wealth out there, but the same 21 million Bitcoin, Bitcoin's value continues to go up. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be but, orders but, of magnitude, right? But as an Amazon worker, if you're trying to get out of the factory, whatever it is, and, and move on to sort of uh, the next step of your life. Mm -hmm. Like if everyone's wealth accrues at the same time, like how do you take that step? Like Bitcoin doesn't give you a leg up if it's giving everyone a leg up at the same time. Well, not everyone's going to have the same rate of savings, right? Some people like, and this goes back to the idea of Bitcoin doesn't change the core, just like drives a man, that you're going to have people who are going to spend it on shiny objects. Like there, there'll still be some level of consumerism and people who don't save are going to have less opportunity. Mm -hmm. But Amazon won't be subject to... Um, uh, minimum wage rates. So likely the the compensation work on Amazon will drop, but the con and also at the same time conditions will also likely drop, and they won't have to run adverts in cinemas before someone watches a film telling you all the great perks and things at Amazon. And perhaps at the end of the month, they still not got enough money left, or they have to work two jobs. So this goes to a world with no like like no like full anarcho capitalism yeah. yeah so the idea would on the counterbalance be that you'd be able to get jobs at another company or you'd be able to be able to find work elsewhere to be able to you know not have to go to amazon because people are going to be competing for labor if there's if there's enough jobs available if there's not enough jobs available so you're saying like there's only one one game in town and amazon's the only company that is the case in some places pretty much sure. like when a walmart comes to a, a small town that's can be the biggest recruiter and then you know we have had towns where industries have died and there's people just massively out of work so if amazon wasn't there what are they doing for work well some of them don't go back to work some of them you know retire rely on government support mm -hmm. yeah there's different so would we just see a natural migration of people you because there's no government support there's no maybe you've got no family you have to move and find work what i'm getting at is i think there's a certain glue in society that protects people. Mm -hmm. And I fear we lose that. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I think he's gone too far sometimes and there are incentives for some people not to work or maybe to have children. And, and yeah, they, I, I get that. But losing that entire glue, I think you end up probably with uh, a different type of wealth disparity, but one where there's no bottom. Because you don't have that safety net to there's step There's no in. safety net at all. And I can, I can listen to and understand and debate the ethics of you know, taxation and you know, all, all tax is coercion, therefore, and all coercion is bad, therefore government is bad. I, I know the argument. I've had it shouted at me a hundred times. But I also think of net benefits and I look at the best places to live in the world and they are Western liberal democracies, which have created the social safety net to protect the most vulnerable in society, not just economically, but in terms of uh, rights, civil rights, Rights, equal rights. And to lose all that, I feel like is a backward step. Yeah, it's funny being in the position of taking the ANCAP side of the argument when I'm not an ANCAP. Uh, I think in, in a world where Bitcoin continues to gain dominance and continues to win, it's going to be a messy transition period, as we talked about, right? Uh -huh. You don't just all of a sudden get to the end. And I think I'm not going to pretend that I have the right answer to be able to say, like, how would someone in rural Appalachia working at Walmart, like, where are their opportunities going to come from? I think ultimately, though, it's just, it sounds like a broken record, but just going back to focusing on the things that I can directly control, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, and, and that's where I find the most meaning in being able to find out what I can have a direct impact on. Because the world is a very big, large, chaotic place, and I don't have the... I'm not, I don't have the hubris to think that I'm able to solve all of those problems. I very humbly walk into it understanding that I know very little and that my sphere of influence is very small. But Growing? Growing, maybe, yeah. But, you know, I, I'm, I am but one man. And the ways that um, society will govern itself, I think there will also be a lot of an element of individual self-selecting based on their communities, right? The idea that in a world where you have this full dissolution of the state, I don't even think will truly happen, but just to take I don't that think hyper it can happen. Yeah, no, but you, you're still got people self-select based on their values to live in certain areas. It's not like Portland, Oregon is going to become a Republican paradise overnight because hyper-Bitcoinization happens. You're going to have people in a local community with a certain set of values with agreements on what they're willing to do. And it's also a great way to attract labor and talent. If people are going to be better taken care of elsewhere, it provides an opportunity where you want to bring people along for labor. It's kind of like a microcosm with um, Tesla when that... Uh, town supervisor or congressional, I forgot who it was, basically yeah, yeah. Told, her, told Elon to go F himself. And, and he was like, see ya. Yep, bye, I'm going to Texas. And now Texas has all of the, the industry and the capital, right? And the employee base here. So I think that there's a, there's a natural self-selecting mechanism where um, people are going to find ways to be able to find local communities that align with their values and being able to get taken care of that way. All right, let's, let's do another good one. Yeah. Just so I'm being fair. Let's talk about uh, the impact of hyper-Bitcoinization on the energy grid. How comfortable sure. are you talking about that? Because we're talking about that a lot at the moment. I can talk about it. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm by no means an expert in mining or energy grids, but uh, this is something that I've gained a deeper appreciation of with Bitcoin. Uh, your conversations with Troy have been fascinating listening to those. Um, also, Harry Suddock, love listening to him. He, he really um, clicked this idea with me where energy is not fungible. And the idea is that once you, you basically have to do one of two things to make energy. You have to spin a turbine, whether that's a wind turbine or steam or hydro or a coal plant, right? Whatever it is, or you're splitting atoms like nuclear reaction, right? But once that energy is created, it has a very short, short timeline to be able to actually get you somewhere. Battery technology is not at a place today where 
you can have a bunch of energy generated and you can hold it for you know a week or two while you wait for the time to use it. So because of that, the energy grid base load of what people are using every single day, you need to be able to provide that and link it to homes and you're going to have excess energy. And using something like Bitcoin, that's going to be able to come in as a buyer first and last resort, that no electron will get wasted. You're spending the carbon footprint anyway to generate the electricity. It's use it or lose it. And Bitcoin can come in and be able to better monetize energy infrastructure. Additionally, I think most people don't understand this. Transmission, I think it's somewhere north of 30% of all energy in the United States when it gets generated, gets lost on the way from the power plant to your home. So, be, And it requires very complicated um, infrastructure of high voltage lines. You've probably seen them like out near your highways and stuff where you see them just going for miles and miles, these really tall like metal structures like with thick power lines. Like That's because it's the only way you're able to actually get energy from point A to point B with minimal loss. And then you have to go to a substation to be able to step down from high voltage to regular voltage. And that's where like that's like the last mile to get it to your house, right? And Bitcoin provides this amazing opportunity to... Uh, it's so funny because I feel like I'm just going to grok everything that Troy was saying. But like, you're, uh, you, you have like this advanced echelon team on the frontiers of energy. So energy can be isolated and stranded in such ways where if no one's using it and it's just sitting there being wasted, you might as well have Bitcoin come in, which can help boost your infrastructure to be able to uh, provide a better baseload energy grid for more stable energy. And that's fundamentally something where prosperity and wealth comes from energy consumption. Uh, we usually don't want to tell people to spend less energy, like use less energy, maybe recycle, but it's very uncomfortable all of a sudden to say, well, you know, as humans, we're very, uh, in the Western liberal world, like we're very used to being able to have power on whenever you want. You use that outlet right there, it'll work instantly. There's no waiting, warming up period. We don't have brownouts where the power goes out for a bit because there's too much energy being used. And being able to have Bitcoin come in as a monetary incentive to monetize the energy grid provides us to be able to build that more robust energy grid, be able to subsidize and pay for renewable energy, which has a lot of problems where if you have solar panels, it's a sunny day, there's a lot of sun, it's way too much sun that can actually be used locally, so you just waste a bunch of energy. So you actually can help out the margins for renewable energies by having Bitcoin come in as a mining source to generate income to offset all of those surpluses. And then when there's an energy shortage, you're able to come in and you're able to say, okay, miners, you need to shut down right now because we have like the ice storms in Texas. We need to be able to shut these down so we can get the power where it needs to go. And I think that's a really beautiful thing about unintended consequence. I actually, Phenomenal, yeah, it? it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, I think Hal Finney, I saw this tweet. I'd never seen this tweet before. It was a week after his running Bitcoin tweet. And he said, thinking about Bitcoin and reducing CO2 emissions. Talk about a man ahead of his time. Dude. You, so get up my Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. I'll show you something kind of interesting. Yeah. So I've kind of come off Twitter. Mm. Um, just I'm literally using it to to retweet the show. Um, and uh, I saw that as well. I think I saw it with Troy. So if you scroll down, look. I'm not, oh, you just retweeted I, it. Yeah, yeah, just retweeted it. I'm not engaging in any debates on Twitter anymore. Yeah. Just can't be bothered. But I will retweet stuff. Signal twist. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And... And I saw this as well. Thinking about how to reduce CO2 emissions from a widespread Bitcoin implementation. January 27th, 2009. Bitcoin Dude. was three weeks old. It's, a, it's truly incredible. Like to see this tweet, I was like, what? What? Yeah. I had never seen that tweet before. I saw it uh, either last night or this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. But this is, and I think just a lot of people who are very passionate about helping the environment because they identify a problem that's happening 
maybe they don't deeper understand how energy grids work. And I think Bitcoin's this really amazing opportunity to educate people how energy grids work and explain how it's a bit of a like a judo move. Actually, Bitcoin helps. It's not a hindrance. And I think it's a really powerful way to talk about what a Bitcoin or hyper-Bitcoinized world works like, where you know you have every bit of energy needs to be very deliberately used because it could be making Bitcoin. And then it makes people much more like kind of like how we financially view Bitcoin as this check of like, I view all my financial decisions through Bitcoin. All of your energy decisions start being viewed through the lens of Bitcoin. So you don't want to waste energy. Well, this is, this is, this is all super interesting. It brings me to what I've been thinking about with this is that there is no utopia. There are just trade-offs. Yes. There are new things that happen and there are things that go away. And whilst we may say Bitcoin fixes this, Bitcoin also breaks things. Okay. And whether you view that as a positive or a negative, it's actually quite subjective. So, for example, uh, Bitcoin, you would say Bitcoin fixes this, fixes the energy system. That's We could say that's probably, if Troy's thesis is correct, that's a net good. If it just suddenly leads to rampant increase in uh, uh, carbon emissions because of uh, increase in coal plants, you'd say that's probably a net bad, but it depends on who you are. You could say... Bitcoin breaks the welfare system. Now, depending on who you are, you might say that's a good thing because the welfare system is broken. But depending on who you might think, you might think that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And I just think we have all these trade-offs that are starting to come with Bitcoin that we really have to think about. Because there's there's the theoretical side of hyper-Bitcoinization and then there's hyper-Bitcoinization happening and the actual impact it's going to have on individuals, companies, and society. Uh, Whole companies might collapse because they didn't, convert to Bitcoin at the right time. Sure. That, that is a possibility. Nations may collapse. Like, what I'm saying is there's all these unintended consequences, and I think it's really important we talk that through and we consider it. So people are either prepared, or companies are prepared, or countries are prepared, and we try and help them towards that lifeboat, but help them towards the consideration of what that means. Kind of rambling now. No, that's good. <laughs> You're good. No, it's great. It's about being aware, going in with eyes wide open, and understanding what the trade-offs and what the world could look like and not kind of, you know, drinking our own Kool-Aid, our orange Kool-Aid, right? And thinking about the, you know, those orange tinted glasses about how everything's going to be great. And I think it's part of that, having an honest conversation is part of getting people maybe prepared or think differently or expand outside of what the normal conversation is to, you know, have new conversations because that's part of Bitcoin's growth and maturity too. The difficult conversations. Yeah, the uncomfortable ones. Yeah. What are the uncomfortable ones we've not touched? Huh. I know you got your notes up. Yeah, I'm, I'm glancing through. We got through most of them. I, I think uh, this idea of purity spirals in Bitcoin, where people like to, it's like this no true Scotsman fallacy of, well, a true Bitcoiner um, eats, is a carnivore. You know, true Bitcoiner, you know, is a libertarian, right? And I think these are weird things where I understand where they come from. They come from a place where the, I have these value structures with Bitcoin. Bitcoin was like this for a long time. And there's like an uncomfortable tension for part of Bitcoin's just natural growth is it's going to change. Because it's almost like if you as an individual, if you were the same person in high school than you were today, it'd be somewhat tragic, right? You're supposed to be evolving as the world changes around you and being able to develop your own character and your own voice. Bitcoin necessarily is going through that like awkward puberty stage right now where it's trying to figure out where it's going next. And as this kind of decentralized hive mind, uh, the only thing we can do is put social pressure on others to try and conform to our worldviews because they can't change the rules of Bitcoin. You can't take my Bitcoin. Uh, 
So the only thing you have is like social pressure and shaming, right? And I think that uh, a lot of uh, just the general uh, discourse, and I think it's really mainly isolated to Twitter. I tease Reddit because I used to go, like I go to Reddit and I used to, I started with Reddit back in 2013, 2014 for Bitcoin. And I feel like just like the larger Reddit culture intersected there now. So it's Redditors talking about Bitcoin, not people who are very serious about or put a lot of thought into Bitcoin talking about it. Are there enough people that makes it matter? Yeah, I mean, you'll get like, it's it's just part of its growth process where um, it used to be the place where I always went to for Bitcoin information. But over time, you lose the the signal from the noise. I think it's just the world to live. It's called Eternal September. Have you heard of this? I have. Yeah. So Eternal September, for those that don't know, isn't there a bank called Eternal September? Isn't don't know. I think there is. So Eternal September was this concept from the old early days of the internet with the Usenet forums. And the, what happened was is that um, every September, the new set of college dorm kids would come and they would invade the internet, not have any sense of idea of etiquette, thoughtfulness, and because the, the internet was this new novel thing. Those jerks. Yeah, right. And then it would take like three months to like school the new crew on like, how, don't type in all caps, like, you know, like sentence, like sentence structured, like how you communicate with people over the internet. But then by the time everything got nice and stable, the new swarm of college kids came in. So when AOL started sending CD drop, like all over the country of like, hey, that sign up for the internet, it was eternal September because the new wave of people coming in was so large, you were no longer able to like instill a sense of culture and cohesion and like norms. And I think Bitcoin partially may be going through a bit of that as it continues to grow, it enters more of the world stage. And I think it's it's uncomfortable in the way where like we feel disempowered where if you've been in Bitcoin for a long time, you no longer feel like you have the ability to like, it's the good old days, right? You don't have the ability to exert your narrative control anymore with Bitcoin. And I understand why people want to push back, but also this is hyper-Bitcoinization. There's more people using it, people from different backgrounds and perspectives. Um, like I listened to your episode with Margo and the one with, uh, was it Brian or Ben? Uh, Arks? Uh, oh yeah, Ben, yeah, Ben, ben Arks. Yeah, ben Arks, yeah, like, but, I find those conversations actually more interesting because they're bringing perspectives I haven't personally considered before. So as exactly. I'm integrating new information, uh, if you've been around for a while or you've put a lot of thought in listening to podcasts and thinking about this stuff, you're looking for new nuggets of information to start digging into. And I think that's more compelling. I may not agree with all of it, but I think it's a, in a good faith conversation. Oh, they're not trying to change the rules of Bitcoin? Okay, yeah, like let's have a conversation. Like that's like the one threshold rule. Like you're not trying to do a hard fork of Bitcoin. And as long as you're not trying to do that, happy to talk to you, right? Yeah, I, I love those conversations. It, yeah. And it was kind of interesting because um, when you go to YouTube comments or iTunes reviews, you, you get a real insight to what people are thinking. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people who don't want the alternative thoughts or opinions. And they've already formed a set of opinions. If somebody comes in with new ones, they're like, I'm unsubscribing from your show because you're having these people on. And and, and I, I would encourage these people to say, these are the shows you should listen to. If you're a libertarian, don't go and listen to a show about libertarian Bitcoin. Go and listen to a show from a left-wing Bitcoiner. Yeah. See where they're coming from. Try and empathize with them. This goes back to my point about um, people use Bitcoin, I think, as a shield for their ego. Yeah. Because it reinforces behaviors that they identify as themselves, and they view themselves as Bitcoin. So Bitcoin can't be different than what they are, because it's an attack on their own self-identity. And I think that's something that we should genuinely be very cautious of and making sure that... Bitcoin as a tool can make us better people and not making us reinforce our shitty behaviors. Well, that was Rogan said recently, you should not be your ideas. Right. Your ideas should evolve over time. And this goes back to if you want to be a different person than you were when you were 18. 
Well, that's why you get stuck in the debates. You can't debate because if your if your ideas are you, once your ideas are challenged, it becomes very difficult to to untangle yourself from that. Especially if you gain a reputation for having ideas, right? Then your ideas become part of your social clout and status. And this is I'm actually kind of happy. I'm kind of under the radar. I'm not uh, like I'm on Twitter. I'll talk with people on Clubhouse all the time, but I give myself the permission structure to change and update my beliefs because. At the end of the day, uh, if I didn't have that set of beliefs, I wouldn't have been the person who went to BitDevs in 2014 and realized, hey, maybe something's different here. Let me go learn about this, right? You have to embrace that journey. Well, and listen, look, Bitcoin isn't libertarian anyway. It's libertarians, a group of libertarians found it. But also, there's a group of left-wingers who've now found Bitcoin. There's a group of conservatives that found Bitcoin. There's a group of moderates who found Bitcoin. And they have genuine use for it. Yeah. Bitcoin is anarchy in the sense that no one's in control. Like, no one's able to, like, there isn't, like, a, a, a board meeting that decides the next rules changes the Bitcoin, right? Um, it's a very slow process to integrate new changes. It took t- Taproot four years, right? And that was something that everyone mostly agreed on. So the larger umbrella is anarchy. And then once, once you agree within the rules of that anarchy, it's whatever you want it to be. And that's the whole point. Like, you get to make your own rules and have your own value structure adhere to it. And to think that one thing or another... I actually, this is a belief I actually updated recently. I used to be like saying that uh, Bitcoin was inherently right wing because it had property rights. And you had, um, you know, you had a consent to like in like your relationship, like talking about the taxation stuff. But, but honestly, like that's not strictly a right wing value. The idea of private property. Even someone who's on the left is going to believe that you should still have private property. Of course. Right. But like that was just me and my own like ego death in a way of being like, maybe I'm trying to associate because I'm right wing. I want to be like, and, and it's funny, like it's a right libertarian bent maybe, but being able to have honest conversation and be like, maybe that isn't me. That's Bitcoin. And that's when I talked about before that when people touch Bitcoin, this pure incorruptible substance, it kind of messes with their head. Naturally so. The orange pill hits really hard. But part of your journey is being able to create that distance between you and Bitcoin and being able to understand that you are not Bitcoin and the map is not the territory in the way that the rules of Bitcoin are not the rules for yourself and the way you should socially govern yourself and the way you should interact with people. And it's a tool that you should use to empower yourself and, you know, help help those around you. That would require a lot of discipline and self-reflection. Yeah, I just, I'll just shitpost on Twitter instead then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it does. It does. It does. It, does. it absolutely does. Yeah. The, the, the whole, uh, you, uh, we, I support the latest thing, I oppose the latest thing. Uh, there's a lot of people fall into both camps and if you fall into one of those camps you i don't believe you've really done the internal work to allow yourself to be wrong right. to be challenged to admit you're wrong maybe you have a fear from your cohort that you'll be banished from the discussions from your clubhouse rooms or whatever but, but like there's a not enough people doing that work really challenging themselves internally it's also bad incentives in the way where maybe i don't even want to like is there a responsibility for someone who should I be speaking my beliefs and kind of pushing back on people? And where I come down on it is that I'd rather not invest the time with people who are bad faith negotiating with me. Right. Cause like that, maybe that's maybe we're talking about like maybe what we should do as a response to all of this, like to, to do something better. I have a hard time trying to justify having these intense fights over the internet in person. I'll be in Miami. If you see me happy to have a conversation, I'll be there all week. Uh, I think having the conversations in person, you get a much better feel to have an authentic flow. And this is also something I really loved about Clubhouse is that it being spontaneous audio, 
you really quickly got to understand who was actually thinking for themselves and who was like spending 20 minutes drafting the perfect tweet to own you back, right? You have to think on your feet. Like you have to have an authentic conversation. If there's a really long pause, you're really quickly found out as someone who doesn't quite think things through. You start stumbling over your words. You start like rambling. Like you start kind of going a bunch of different directions. And it's a, I think it's a much more compelling way to organize people to have these more intense conversations because you have to be able to speak from the heart to have a good feeling of things, which means you've had to integrate ideas, maybe ones that you've previously disagreed with, right? And I think text and the time lag just enables for really bad, more, I'm just gonna go on Google and I'm gonna find all the points that make me agree with and then validate my worldview and I'm gonna put those in the replies. It's like, if you, if you had to go off to Google to like find all these supporting facts and stuff, maybe you're trying to protect your, your own self-image as opposed to maybe allowing the idea that you were wrong. Yeah, that's... I mean, I couldn't agree more. This yeah. is my job. I literally do it all the time. Yeah. And I have this ongoing struggle with discussions or attempts at discussions that are text-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the reward structure is broken. It's a miserable failure. Uh, and get into a situation like this, and I can have this conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And what comes out of it is it will get published and some emails will come in and there'll be some YouTube comments. And I can read through it and go, that's a useful comment. I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. Or someone can send me uh, an email and say, your guest said this and it's wrong because of this. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's cool because of that. And then I can just kind of like ignore the noise. But what I can do with this is I can control how I respond to some. Because by the way, it turns anyone into a prick. I yeah. turn into a prick on Twitter. Like I can control the conversation. I can, I can control and discipline myself. And I think we need more of this. I mean, wouldn't it be great on Twitter if like, if, uh, if you're having an argument with somebody on it, like you could just, after like two replies, you just press a button, you get on a Zoom call. The conversation will go very differently. Oh, yeah. I think that's like a, it's something I'm surprised I haven't seen with Twitter spaces, where it actually happened with uh, Preston Pish and Mark Cuban. They were fighting about Bitcoin back and forth, and Preston was, it's like the equivalent of the meet me outside after class. So Preston just opened up a Twitter space calling Mark Cuban out. And I was actually in that room and I was talking to Mark Cuban. Like you were there too, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. And we were talking for a while, but what was funny was, I'm surprised that didn't happen more to be able to go to a, a signal, like a, a conversation channel that's higher bandwidth, like audio, having more information you can exchange. I thought you would start seeing more of that with Twitter spaces where you have a text fight and then you're like, okay, let, let's have a deeper conversation. Like you said, like click one button and be on a Zoom call maybe, right? There's more empathy in person to person. Absolutely. Yeah, it, I think it's not only more empathy, but I'm actually able to... Sp- What's important about the empathy is rather than me speaking from a pulpit of these are my beliefs, I get to understand what do you value and like trying to triangulate where my beliefs and your beliefs intersect and we can have a compelling conversation as opposed to reading from a script, which is much less interesting. But again, that requires discipline and maturity. Yeah. And this is where I ultimately defer to not trying to the idea of uh, casting pearls at swine. It's an old biblical thing, but the idea being that like you almost devalue the wisdom if you try and give it to people who are ungrateful for it, right? So maybe the best way is just to opt out. And maybe that's why Twitter's become a circus, is that all the adults left, and now we're just in an insane asylum all locked in with each other. <laughs> it is a fucking insane asylum. <laughs> <laughs> we watched a film last night. Have you seen Darren Aronofsky's mother? No. Uh, do you know who Darren Aronofsky is? I don't. He did Requiem for a Dream, Noah, okay. Black Swan. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so mother, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. Mm. But if you do watch it, which I'd encourage, just because it's so weird mental, uh, just imagine it as Twitter. That film is Twitter. Okay. That was uh, Jeremy's uh, observation last night. I'd recommend that. 
Well, listen, man, this is great to talk about with you. You know, I love talking to you, and yeah. Danny loves having you on the show, and uh, you'll always have a have a home here if you want to talk to talk to me about something. Uh, tell people where to follow you and find out more what you do. Yeah, uh, my Twitter handle is at Rob One Ham R O B the number one H A M, and uh, yeah, that's uh, you can also find me on Clubhouse the same handle and uh, shoot me a note and let me know how the conversation went. I always love to be told why I'm wrong and maybe learn better from it. So reach out. All right, man. Take care, brother. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. 